0: Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yeah, I'm Nate Larkin here with your friend of mine, Aaron Porter. We're braving the elements, actually sheltering from the elements here in Middle Tennessee. and. Having I I don't know, Aaron. I just absolutely and on the one hand, it's a shame that unlike the early days when we were in the same room high atop the Mellow Mushroom or out on the Ponderosa making the long drive to get in the studio. Well, we're still meeting, we're still talking, but you're at your house, I'm at mine. We're thirty miles apart, but even though it's not exactly the same as being in the same room. It. Uh, I always look forward to these conversations, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's just a delight. See your face. I know we're going to have a great guest today, uh, and I love having you in Tennessee. So uh, tell me, dude, where I, I don't know that the listeners know this, but this vicious cold snap that we had come through much of the middle of the United States, your humble abode was not quite prepared for and you're still dealing with the after effects.
0: Yeah. I think, well, we're on day like 19 or 20 after that, but, uh, yeah, it got to negative one here at our house. I think that's cold. Mm -hmm. It's ever been for me. I learned a lot. I went to drive Elijah somewhere in the middle of the day. Oh my gosh. So we, one of his friends was talking about the blizzard that was coming through, and I'm like, "This okay? Number one, this isn't a blizzard. I don't know what a blizzard yeah. technically is, but this ain't a blizzard." And I'm like, yeah. our, "Our house is warm. It's been fine. We're in a warm car right now. We almost got to the place he was going. And my car broke down. Well, it didn't mm-hmm. break down. Uh, it didn't. The gas gauge was not accurate, and I did not know that oh. until this trip. Um, okay. And so I'm on the side of the road wearing a t-shirt." And a hoodie, no gloves, no m- mittens of any sort. And I'm like, yeah. all right, you just head over to where you're going. I'll go walk a quarter mile and get some gas. I got about a hundred yards. There was maybe a 15 degree breeze. It was about six degrees oh, at that point. Yeah, and my, yeah. my hands started aching in a way that I was like, ooh, this doesn't this doesn't feel safe. Like this feels bad, yeah. bad. Which I looked it yeah. up and it was like negative 15 with the wind at where it was. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. So I huddled in a Whataburger until my daughter got off of work. But uh-huh. I mean, that was the beginning. Then got home to our pipes frozen and our heaters being out. So that first night it was 18 yeah. degrees in the house, um, and all of the all of the little heaters were sold out of everywhere. I drove around the next oh, day. Oh, sure. So I got a bunch of terracotta pots and some candles and made those heaters. It was a cold Christmas. Um, Wow. Then about four days later, the water defrosted and we had water pouring out of our ceilings and my ceilings collapsing on the first floor. And it's just gone on ever since. So uh, we just got the water back on about two days ago. So it was about 17 days without water and we do not see the heat returning anytime soon. So it has been an odd
1: month. Wow. Well, a little clue into how self-centered and obsessive I am. What really stuck out to me in that story was that you sheltered in a Whataburger, and I did not know there's a Whataburger this close to my house. Now (laughs) I have to go to Murfreesboro. Do you like Whataburger? (laughs) Oh, are you kidding? Yes, absolutely. But what my you, favorite what, burger joint.
0: Yeah. What do you like to eat there? Because I've tried a couple and I'm like, okay, this is different. Still like In-N-Out I like better. The
1: signature burger, the Whataburger. Oh, I, I had my first one 50 years ago. Uh, and it was a unique experience for me.
0: It's How long and, has Whataburger been around?
1: Well, I had one 50 years ago. So it's been around at least that long. Wow. It's out of Texas. I had my first one in Texas. All right. Well, I'll try and, it. And then it lived in, in the realm of uh, myth. And legend in my mind for years until I was able to finally find another one. I have been known to drive 150 miles to have a whatever
0: Holy macaroni! That's yeah. That's that's your favorite then. You must like that more than In and Out.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, but back to but back to the misery that you have yeah. endured for this. Well, long, okay. Uh, this is
0: here's the problem. Here's the problem. Yeah. Uh I, I've had some neighbors being very gracious and when people hear about this it's like, Oh, this is a really big deal. It's so not. It's like second world problems. It sure ain't okay. the first world, but it's also not yeah. the third world. Our right. electricity was out for the first day, but came back on. I had gas. Right. We could take mm-hmm. showers uh by heating up a gallon of water. I got to be able to take like two thirds of a gallon and then a coffee cup in the shower take a shower there are people all around the world that have to make a fire to pull that off so yeah it's not impossible you wear more clothes in the house you know you
1: wear a sweatshirt but it's so you have a great you have a great attitude and this also gives me more a window into your strategy for preparing the harbor for,
0: uh, for occupancy. <laughs> no, but, but, but sir, the, the big thing to me that was cool, I, I remember when I used to do these podcasts from my little shack office at the last house uh-huh. I was in in California. And uh-huh. it had no door when we first moved there. So I had to put a piece yeah. of plywood against the front to try to keep the animals out, which didn't work at all. And I would yeah. have to lean it and scooch past and then figure out how to make it flop back into place while I was in there. And I did that for about two weeks before a friend came over because he had to cut this door to this small size. And when I had a door on that, I just sat there. I remember going to, to church that Sunday, and I opened the door and thought to myself, I've never even thought to be grateful for doors. Doors are amazing! (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: and so i'm just thinking like the kids are getting through it they weren't complaining about it it was fine right, right. it was just inconvenient yeah. but man when we're able to turn on a shower and yeah. that kind of stuff you're like oh how long have i gone since i've been grateful for a shower wow. or to have wow. water at the kitchen sink and be able to wash dishes so it's yeah i don't know i i think It's kind of like life forcing Lent on us Mm
1: -hmm.
0: where there's a time of depriving ourselves of something so that we gain perspective again. And I think I should, I used to choose to do that every year or two for about three Mm -hmm. months. I would just say, okay, none of this, this and this, because I want to see what my life feels like. I want to see how wrapped up I am in it. And so, you know, fine a couple weeks of being deprived but what you get out of it is a heck of a lot of perspective
1: oh that's fantastic
0: i still can't believe how stupid i was though because i was buying gallon jugs of water so every toilet flush cost a uh, close to three dollars and so we're (laughs) like okay (laughs) hey let's let's chill on the flushing toilets in this house Um, yeah it literally took me Five or six days to realize my neighbors all have running water and hoses, and right. so I finally called them. I'm like, "Hey, can I fill my jugs up at your in your yard?" And they're like, "Of course!" <laughs> like, "Oh my gosh, how did that take that long to think of that?" So yeah, there, there's a few few humbling moments along the way where I felt like an idiot.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, hey, we got a great conversation on tap. Uh, let's not take any on more On tap, what are you, making fun of me now? <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to turn on the faucet And out is going to come a great conversation When we return On the Pirate Monk Podcast Welcome back to the Pirate Month Podcast Hey, our friend Justin Schwind has secured for us another fascinating guest, a guy with a great story and a guy on a mission. Joe Ryan is joining us today from, well, from Manhattan. You are right there in the Big Apple, Uh, not far from where you grew up, I understand.
2: Yeah, I was born in Queens, Um, so just over the river, a quick subway ride from where I was born.
1: Okay, so you had a smooth and easy childhood born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You went straight (laughs) to an Ivy League school and it's just been downhill ever uh, uh, easy skating ever since. Do I have it right?
2: Absolutely. As soon as you get that Ivy League degree, it's all downhill from there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Actually, it was via community college for about six months and then I was out.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, rewind for us, will you? Tell us. Tell us. We always like our guests, our our, our audience, to get to know the guests personally. Everybody has a backstory. We get we, those of us who find ourselves in this field of endeavor didn't get here by accident. Uh, so, tell us, how'd you get to where you are? Uh, humble
2: beginnings. Grew up in Queens, New York. Uh, have. Italian half Irish family. My mother was Italian. My father was Irish. So Mm -hmm. that was an interesting combination. Both Catholic though. Both Catholic. I'm a recovering Catholic. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, And then you know, at some point, they they moved to Long Island. But um, you know, very humble beginnings. You know, especially my grandfather was off the boat, Italian through Ellis Island back in the turn of the century. Wow. Uh, You know, Italians were considered very dirty, very uneducated, Mm. um, just, you know, bottom of the heap. So there was a lot of shame that came from the Italian side of the family that seemed to be creating an image most of my life to kind of cover up the humble beginnings and the shameful Uh, beginnings here in this country. So it was the illusion.
0: can you explain yeah. that to me because like I see that in movies right here's all the kids in some New York neighborhood and these are the Irish ones and these I did not grow up in an area where anybody knew where anybody came from I don't even know where I come from it's just not <laughs> a part of the mindset so what was that actually like were you like you knew these are the Italian kids you'd hang out with or parents would talk about that or what was it
2: it was you, you kinda gravitated towards your own heritage. So when we we started in Manhattan before I was born and they went to Queens and mm-hmm. within probably an eight or ten block radius, I had a bunch of aunts, uncles, and cousins. They all kind of moved together. So mm-hmm. it was the mentality of we're kinda new to this country, we need to stick together, stick with our own. You know, if they started to integrate into more wealthier or different ethnic backgrounds, they stood out more and the shame was more magnified. So mm-hmm. they congregated in, into a specific area and stayed kind of with their own. So my world became, you know, this is the right way we do it. Everybody else is wrong. And we're creating this image of we have it together together. This is the way it is. And, you know, it was all, you know, my opinion, to cover up the, the shameful background that they had come from, to overcome wow. it.
0: Yeah, because I, can't, I was, can't think of any practical purpose other than kind of an insulation to keep those shameful feelings it, out. But as a community, it, it as insul- a family.
2: Yeah, it was insulation, and it was it was survival too. So Mm -hmm, it was, mm -hmm. we kind of all banded together. We were within a couple of blocks. We all looked out for each other, who was sharing food. You know, Sunday was at Aunt Tessie's house, you know, Tuesday's was at my grandmother's house. We were very close and tight and there Mm -hmm. was a lot of us, but there wasn't, I didn't see much more of the world other than Mm -hmm. the Italian part of my heritage was very overpowering compared to the Irish side. The Irish was a very small Part it's, of the family. it's
0: the garlic. Get some potatoes together. Get some <laughs> garlic together. What's gonna overwhelm the flavor? It's gonna be the garlic. That,
2: that's right. Always, my grandmother always had a wooden spoon stirring something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how how old are you? Because you're describing something that I'm picturing like the newsies. Like we're, I'm picturing the 1920s or 30s. But you you look like a young man
2: here. Uh, I look a lot younger than I am. I'm actually in my 50s.
0: That's not that old for what you're describing.
2: (laughs) Well, my grandparents lived a long time, so I got to spend a lot of time with them. And I heard the stories of the old country and starting out here. And we were very mm -hmm. tight-knit. So it was very real and a a big part of my life.
0: Yeah. So where did you go from there? That's where you're growing up. That's the environment you're in. Uh, What happens as you start to get in those junior, senior high years? And you start to, well, we moved out to
2: we moved out to suburbia. So I was on Long Island. And for the most part, I feel like I grew up there. Although every weekend we were back in Queens because you stayed tight to the family. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was always um I was always a hustler. I started working when I was young. I started a business at an early age, at a landscaping business. I worked for my uncle's butcher shop up in the Bronx on weekends with my grandfather.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: it was a way of there was an image that my family kind of said was acceptable and being mm-hmm. working got me a lot of applause in my family. Mm-hmm. That's, that's when they paid attention. Creativity, um, you know, just kind of being me, there was not a lot of attention paid. So I felt very lonely and very isolated. When I found what got me applause and attention, I gravitated towards it, which was working and being a hustler. So mm-hmm. I had always worked really, really hard. And at some point I had a, had a very successful landscape and business and I just wasn't feeling like it was the right thing for me. So I sold it to my partner and I started tending bar and doing stand-up comedy. So that kind of wow. life leads Yeah, that kind of life leads to a lot of late nights, a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs, a lot of partying, yeah. no structure and you know, I grew up in a, in a house where, you know, there was alcoholism, there was abuse, there was, you know, a mental and emotional and physical. And mm-hmm. I started drinking probably, I think it was around the age of 10 or 11. Valium to sleep, I would kind of sneak, you know, sips out of my father's scotch. I would go get, I was his bartender, I'd go get him beers. And when his voice had gotten to a certain octave, I knew he wasn't paying as much attention, so I could <laughs> drink more. So I kind of wow. started drinking with my father even though he didn't know and there was something clicked with me really early on with the alcohol that it just kind of take away the anxiety and and the guilt and the shame and just that feeling of not feel like i didn't know what i had felt because i was too young but i knew the Mm -hmm. alcohol took away the uncertainty and the not knowing you know what my role was yeah and it just as years went on and then it was the alcoholism built, got rid of the business. I said, What can I do that I can drink and make money? All right, let's 10 bar and do stand up. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you
0: before you go too much farther into this. Uh, yeah. I, I mentioned that I think it was only about a week ago that I watched Sleepers again. Uh, I hadn't seen it for a long time. And I was, there. there's that beautiful narr- narration over so much of that early life. And it talks about the abuse in the house but it talks about it in a a very passing way. Like it just is what Mm -hmm. it is. And so I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned the same thing. Okay. There's drinking, there's abuse, but then we're moving on. How is that playing a role in making you feel unsafe? And like, I, I'm starting to develop coping mechanisms because it is normal quote, normal, but it's very abnormal to my developing brain
2: and heart. Well, I didn't. I thought it was normal, and you know, you go to school and you look at kids, and it was a nice neighborhood. It wasn't fancy, but it wasn't, you know, it was middle class, and mm-hmm. nobody seemed to have problems. So I didn't know if it was just me or anybody else, and nobody had really spoke about it. So it was kind of matter of fact, and I, I got, you know, I lived very hyper vigilant. I started to understand how to like tame them when they needed to be tamed. I knew how to stay out of the way, and you know, sometimes you just. Don't get out of the way or there's no way to stay out of the way. They're going to come at you and they're going to get you at some point. But I did my best to avoid and I had weathered through it. And, you know, it was an interesting story that um, I had an uncle that had gotten out of prison because he was um, he was heavily into drugs and he was supporting his habit. Through robberies. And when he had gotten out, nobody, there was family secrets. I mean, it was a different generation. Nobody talked about anything. It wasn't social media. Nobody said a word. So you just kind of kept it all inside. And I guess I felt very ashamed of who I was that if I was better, if I was good enough, if I was lovable, this wouldn't have happened. So I, I have a very poor, negative image of myself. And when my uncle had gotten out of prison, I think, I don't know how old I was, it was, you know, early teens. And he had come to stay with us because he had no place to live. And he, he grabbed me one day and he said, does your father still hit you? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: he looked at me, he goes, don't you lie to me. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, my father hit me. I hit my son. You cannot mm-hmm. tell me he doesn't hit you. And I'm like, so what are you going to do about it? He goes, I'm not doing anything about it. He goes, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. He goes, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. He goes, the next time he gets drunk and comes at you, you're going to call him an alcoholic. You're going to run as fast as you can. And you're not going to come home for three days. And this thing kind of sat in my head. Like, there's no way you're a kid. This guy's a giant, right? It's the equivalent Mm -hmm. of being an adult and the guy being, you know, 22 feet and 700 pounds. It's like, how are you going up against this? And one night there was, you know, it just, he had a little too much to drink and wanted to have a conversation. Like I kind of tired of the conversations. I had my uncle's voice in the back of my head and I blurted out, you know, why don't you stop drinking like your brother did and leave me alone. And I don't even finish my sentence. And, you know, he came at me pretty hard and my mother ran out of the house and kind of broke it up. And there was, that was a big change in my life for me. That I realized what was going on wasn't normal. It Mm. wasn't, you know, it shouldn't have been. And, you know, to to my father's credit, he, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? Right. Your fish doesn't know it's in water until you take it out of water. My father did 10 times better with me than his father did with him. So Mm -hmm. it was an improvement. I'm not excusing him, but I'm also not blaming him. He was a product of his environment. He came from a place that was a lot more damaging than where I came from. And that was a big change. He had, he stopped drinking. Um, we repaired a lot of our relationship. And I kind of picked up the torch. <laughs> and, you know, when he... <laughs>
1: Somebody's got to do the drinking for this family.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, a family always seems to balance itself. So my family (laughs) needed somebody to focus on. Then I became the focus and I was drinking and drugging heavily and I became out of control. And, you know, I ended up one day I I just couldn't take the pain anymore. And I had kind of cut everybody out of my life. I was living by myself. I'd stopped doing comedy because the road was becoming too dangerous with the drugs and the alcohol. And, you know, I wanted to have some kind of a normal life. And I started reading self-help books. And I read this passage about AA and I ended up calling AA and Mm -hmm. I got this, this girl was on the phone and I was terrified. It was that phone. There was nothing more heavier than that phone boy. And she said, promise me you will go. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, I just need you to say the words. Promise me. I said, I promise you, I'm going to go. And it was weird how powerful that was. And I went to the meeting and I'm sitting there in a room full of like, you know, 40 drunks. And mm-hmm. I just kept saying to myself, don't raise your hand over and over in my head. Like it was surreal. And as I'm saying this, my hand went up. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm looking at it. and I'm like, get it down, get it down, get it down. Stop. And they called on me. And I shared for the first time and that was kind of the start of it. There was, mm. I couldn't unknow what I knew at that point. See, I didn't think I had a problem. I watched my father shrink like a wild man. I hung out with guys, so I'm out for 34 days straight, but this guy's right. been out for 62 days, so I don't have a problem. <laughs> yeah. And once I once that, that lightning bolt had hit me that, you do have a problem because I couldn't function without the alcohol and the, the, the emotional disturbance in my body when I was trying not to drink and use drugs was the, the anxiety and the panic and the fear and the disturbance. And it was so overpowering at, a, at, at that age that I couldn't even imagine what it was like at three, five, and seven years old.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that was the path. And I went 17 years clean and sober.
1: Wow. Now, Joe, I don't know about you. I got sober as well in 12-step recovery, sober from uh, sex addiction. That's my favorite drug, although I I, uh, I have a little talent around alcohol as well. Um, but back when I got started, it was so extremely helpful for me, the coaching, the teaching, the company, the, the wisdom in the room, uh, and a new way to meet God. In the room. Uh, but nobody was talking about trauma back then. That word wasn't even the, in the vocabulary. Now, today, you host a podcast called It's Not You, It's Your Trauma. Correct. Uh, right? Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you've got a whole, uh, why, you have a wider and probably a deeper perspective now on addiction this far into your recovery journey. When did that light start to come, up, uh, come on for you?
2: Well, I was clean and sober for 17 years. I had a successful business. I had a wife, and I had two children and uh-huh. i kind of perfected what i like to call the false self i became what my family was proud of i became uh-huh. i i fulfilled my role and i was really good at it uh-huh. i was i never wanted to be a father because of where i came from i thought i was going to be really bad at it and it, it turns out that i i stopped the generational abuse uh-huh. and I had a very successful business, was doing well, house, all of that. And at some point after my second child was born, my wife kind of started to check out. I couldn't understand why. I lost the business. I was in bankruptcy. She was like, didn't want anything to do with me at that point. Um, Kind of bottomed out. Like I fulfilled my dream for an hour and a half right? Uh And I'm living the dream and I'm happy. And this is the way I wanted to live everything. You know, I lived pretty, pretty well in the sense that a lot was out of my system. And I really Uh didn't have much to explore. And then I lost the business, lost the marriage, lost the house, lost the life savings, lost the kids half the time. Moved out, met a woman, fell in love, took her away on vacation, got hit by, she got hit by a car, didn't know who I was. And this all happened in 18 months. Oh my gosh. So I went from this big fulfilled life, successful business, money, travel, family, home, neighbors, coaching little league. Like it was the, you know, the American dream, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: To living alone and crickets. And Mm -hmm. when Francina had gotten hit by the car, I was left in this place that I had never been before, so I'm bankrupt. I was barely getting by financially because I was going through the lawsuits, taking care of you know the house where my kids lived. I still had them half the time, and I was slowly wearing down and nobody knew how to be there for me um, mm-hmm. and i don't know how if I would know how to be there for somebody who was going through what I went through, but it was such i a loss in 18 months.
0: Will you, will you and, unpack, before you go on from that, will you unpack nobody knew how to be there for me? What did that mean to you specifically
2: at that time? I felt very alone, very isolated, and it kind of had felt near the end of my initial run with addiction, where mm-hmm. I was alone in an apartment. I didn't know where to turn, where to go, how to do it. I just felt lost and I was I became I I became reckless. I went back to my first language. I was blackout drinking within 6 months. I was waking up in places where I didn't know how, where I got how I got there. Mm-hmm. I could not find my car. Um you know, it, it was it was so quick. 17 years just of sobriety evaporated and in seriously in less than 2 months blackout drinking the pain was just so great i didn't know how to deal yeah so so that was um that was man that was tough and i went back to my old therapist and she's like i'm not worried about you you're pushing your boundaries you're going to push it too far one day and you're going to reel it back in and i looked at her and i'm like i don't really think that's accurate i'm like i am completely out of control and i don't know where the break is and i don't even know if i want to hit the break because mm-hmm. I don't, I can't deal with this much loss in this short of a period of time.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and were you at the? You were at the point where you thought hitting the wall might give you more comfort than hitting the brake.
2: It was too. Yeah, it was too pain. Yeah, it was too pain. I had the bottom out. I had. To, mm. <laughs> there was it. There was. I had to hit the bottom before I can come back up. There was no stopping where I was at and climbing back up. I had to mm-hmm. follow this to the end and the thing that had did it was i started out on long island and i ended up i think it was staten island and i wasn't sure how i had gotten there Mm -hmm. and i had to get home within six hours because i had my kids for the next three and a half days no idea where my car was no idea how i got there um ended up taking the ferry back to manhattan grabbing the long island railroad out to the island rented a car because i didn't know where Mm -hmm. mine was picked my kids up had one of the worst hangovers of my life and went to a barbecue um where there were other children and friends who had had kids and i sat there and i nursed my hangover and i watched my kids i'm getting emotional now excuse me um and i'm like i can't do this like i just Mm -hmm. like i gotta rein this in i think i think this is bottom like it's not gonna get any better and I've been down this road before and I'm looking at these two kids and I am it for them. Mm-hmm. And if I don't get my shit together, the disservice that I was going to do to them, um, I just it it touches me every time I think about it. But they kind of saved me. And I think back to what my therapist had said, you're gonna push your limits and you're gonna go too far and you're gonna reel it back in. And that was the day. Like what if what if I had gotten killed? <laughs> what if, you know, mm-hmm. like like, what if I just didn't show up again for them? Like, what is their Mm -hmm. life like going forward? And I slowly started to bring it back. And I started to pay attention to my feelings. And I started to sit with them. And that body disturbance, that uncomfortable feeling inside, that panic, that shameful, not good enough. I put all of that bad feelings into the energy of being a good father again. And I kept showing up for my kids and I would take really good care of them for three and a half days. And I would completely emotionally collapse for three and a half days until they came back again. And this was my process for a while. So I gave them everything I had, fell apart, worked on it, broke myself down. Um, And then the big turnaround for me, I know I went a long way. You asked about the trauma when it came for me was I ended up starting to get myself back together. I was dating this woman and we were up in the mountains and she was like, I didn't know how much she had drank and she was drinking really heavily. And she was getting very angry and belligerent and demanding. And she got my, I like, I was actually afraid because I was, you know, I really wasn't drinking, you know, a little wine, but with dinner type of thing, but nothing like I wasn't getting drunk and like having those blackout episodes. And she was like, She backed me into this corner, into this door jam, was screaming at me. And I started to remember stuff from childhood. Like it was very familiar, the fear and the the panic and the terror. And it it felt life-threatening. Even though my life wasn't being threatened in the moment, the feelings were that childhood. So I went Mm. actually in that moment, went back to what it felt like at moments in childhood. And she's like, this isn't normal. This isn't a normal relationship. And like, there was this long pause and I had my head down and I looked up and I just said, what happened to me wasn't normal. And I broke down for four hours and Mm. I just kept reliving a lot of it. And I had never felt lighter after that. I was raw. I was open. Mm. I was vulnerable. I was exposed, but I had a freedom within my body that I had never Ever known, not through AA therapy, nothing. Mm-hmm. This was the most cathartic experience I had had. And that's when the word trauma stuck for me. Wow.
1: Wow. Mm.
0: What are you hearing, Nate? Because you've done a, a lot of trauma work and here Joe's describing almost this purging of a whole lot of emotional stuff where yeah. uh, a lot of people take years of going baby steps towards getting to that point. So when you're right. hearing that story with some of the experiences you've had over the last few years, what are you hearing?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I read it is true. It, it's interesting to me that you say you, you've felt, never felt lighter. You felt it in your body. And of course, you know, how powerful, how influential has Bessel van der Kolk's book Uh, the body keeps the score been in the last few years. The fact that this trauma, these memories that we've not been able to process are actually stored in the body and we carry them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when we can allow them to come out and we have to be either in a desperate enough place or a safe enough place, and for all of us, I think it takes a combination of the two. We hit that point where we can actually recognize face and experience the trauma and survive it and get through it and speak it and let it go. There is a physical response. We mm-hmm. actually, we've been carrying it. It's a freaking weight to carry that trauma, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It is yeah, a,
2: yeah. A emotional para- para- paralysis. It is so heavy to carry that trauma in your body that the older I was getting, the harder it was for me to function because I couldn't carry the weight anymore, and it was surfacing.
0: So we can hope that this is a one-and-done emotional experience. You're trauma-free because you have purged it in a (laughs) four-hour cry session. What happened after (laughs) that that amazing Uh, experience?
1: So I
2: get off the mountain, and I get back to reality, and I'm still raw and almost you know in aa pink cloud um yeah, right. i had that mm-hmm. i had the kind of like the pink cloud feeling for a little while and what resonated with me was i've been doing this all wrong i've been mm-hmm. trying to to become something to become successful to have all of these addictions and and these hobbies and everything outside of myself to make me feel better about myself on the inside that the light bulb for me was The only way to feel better about me is to go inward. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to start sitting with my feelings instead of mood altering. Yeah. And I knew I couldn't do it alone. I mean, you know, you have thoughts of suicide. Can I go on knowing what I know now? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, do I want to go on? You know, what does this road look like healing this? And I would spend a lot of time in the park by the water and out on the island, Cold Spring Harbor, and I would journal a lot. And I ended up said, I need to find a really good therapist. And I started down this road and I went through three or four therapists and I fired them all the first shot because every time I tried to talk about the experience, it felt like it was too much for them. And I Mm -hmm. felt like they were trying to take me out of my feelings. And Mm -hmm. finally, one woman said, listen, I think you should try this place. And at this point, I'm kind of frustrated. And I went and I sat down with this woman and she was like, well, what brings you here? And I told her about the experience up on the mountain and I actually relived it with her, almost waiting for her to stop me and take me in another direction. But to her credit, she... (laughs) She held that space and went with me all the way through Mm. the story. And I was crying and I was sobbing and, you know, I was hurting and, you know, I kind of finished and composed myself and I looked at her and I said, so where do we go from here? And she goes, uh, if you'd like, I would like to, I would like you to be my client. And Mm. we ended up reliving that experience I don't, I think it was 14 or 16 times. I just kept Mm -hmm. going back to it. And every time I got back to it, it was less painful. And instead of feeling like the victim, I started to feel empowered over the emotions that I was having with it. To the point where I had gotten so comfortable telling the story to her and reliving it, that it was Mm -hmm. not really that emotional. And then I came in one day and I started, she goes, that's it. I go, what do you mean that's it? She goes, we don't do that here anymore. I'm like, Mm -hmm. what do you mean? I'm like, I'm just getting good at this. How do you, (laughs) what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just getting
0: good at this.
2: (laughs) And she goes, you can take all the time you want outside of this office. You have learned, in my opinion, you have learned everything you need to learn in here with me. This walks off in many directions. And if we stay here where you're comfortable, you're never going to learn how to deal with the feelings and the paths that you've taken because of this because they are equally painful. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was so disappointed in a way. I'm like <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to have to start over again and do this again. But she was absolutely right. And we worked together and we just kept exploring. All of that discomfort in my body that had fucked off and and the choices I was making and started to envision the life that I wanted to live and the person that I wanted to be outside of my role, outside of being codependent, outside of being a people pleaser. Like Who was Joe when you took away all the layers that he had Mm -hmm. surrounded himself with not to feel the trauma? Yeah. And that has been the path forward for me is to figure out what I like to do, who I am, what kind of person am I at, what do I like to eat, what are my hobbies. And, you know, the, the false self gets put into place so that you don't feel pain, so that mm-hmm. you don't feel worthlessness, so you don't feel those things. So when you start to dismantle that false self, what are you doing? You're taking yourself back into the pain that originally started to form the false self. So that's the direction I started to go with her.
0: Let me ask, when you hit that weekend where you lost the car, had to take the train back to get your kids, (laughs) how old were your kids at that point?
2: Oh, God. Um, I think my daughter was eight, and he was six.
0: Okay. Then how how old were they when you had your mountaintop experience?
2: They were older. They were. um, That was. That was so. I guess eleven and nine.
0: Okay. So here's here's a strange question. Feel free not to answer it. So you've got this this chunk of time. Um, I have realized as my kids have gotten older, how many things I tried to do my role and do my duty and then be wiped out on my own time Mm -hmm. and how many conversations I've had with them where they're like, Oh no, we, we saw all the stuff that you thought you were either protecting us from or hiding. How have you seen things change as a father in your relationship with your kids as you have been able to deal with your real self and actually address real past hurts Instead of just playing the role of I can I can pull this off for three and a half days, then let me go lick my wounds. What's what's changed in how they experience you and you experience them?
2: It got to a point where they never saw that I had needs, wants, or desires. Right, mm-hmm. like I was mm-hmm. just showing up for them all the time. That there was a, a lack of human element in our relationship. Where and you know going through the divorce, um, which wasn't pretty, and you know, one of my kids had got s- sucked in the middle. Mm-hmm. So for me, I had to start showing real. I had to mm-hmm. s- let them know that I had feelings, that I had emotions, that I did struggle with things, that I was doing my best. And I think the thing that I feel like I I feel like the thing I'm most proud of is apologizing and explaining. where. Sometimes, you know, you'll get angry with your children, and it's you feel so shameful, but it feels more shameful to apologize. <laughs> so when I act shameless, and they absorb my displeasure, they're internalizing it that they're not good enough, that they're not okay, that I am displeased with them. The big turn for me was, I lost my temper there. And I took it out on you and that was wrong. I have this going on here and I'm very overwhelmed and it boiled over and I took it out on you and it was wrong and I apologize and I'm going to do my best to never let this happen again. Like they looked at me like, who are you? And what are you saying to me? (laughs) And that has become a constant with me, with them. They'll get messages. One of my children's more receptive to them than the other, but they'll get these messages out of the blue. Like if I ever did anything that ever made you feel not good enough, I apologize. I did everything with love and I thought I was doing the best at the time, but I'm sitting here today thinking about this time. And I think I may have made you feel bad about yourself. And I'm sorry if I did. And one kid will be like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but thanks dad. And the other one like four days will go by and I'll get, uh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying not to, I'm I'm trying to find that line of not putting, not alleviating my guilt and shame through them and putting it on them, but letting them know that I did make mistakes. And as I grow as a human, I'm starting to understand them and I want to make amends for them.
1: Mm -hmm. So, So, uh um, Before we go, tell us about your podcast and about your coaching and how our listeners, uh, those who would like to reach you, how they could possibly do it.
2: So the podcast is called It's Not You, It's Your Trauma. And Mm -hmm. that started, you know, at a very dark place where writing used to soothe me and journaling would kind of satisfy Mm -hmm. what it needed and it wasn't working anymore. So I turned on the microphone in my office one Christmas morning, and I kind of just, you know, trauma dumped everywhere. And I have a good friend that I trust. And I was like, am I insane? Like, listen to this. Does this make any sense to you? And he's like, how is this not a podcast? I said, I'll tell you how it's not. Nobody could know that I have these thoughts running through my head. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Yeah. And And he's like, do you know how many people you can help? I'm like, I can't even help myself today. And he goes, I'm telling you, I think this is really going to be helpful. And he convinced me to put it up there. And I just started to do it a couple of years, about three years ago. I'm 70 episodes in and Mm -hmm. I open an emotional vein. It's, you know, for them and it's not really, it's not (laughs) fluff and positive affirmations. It's a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. You can kind of tell what I was going through at the time, but it was a way of me Showing the world that I am full of shame and I don't feel good enough. And even though I feel those things, I don't want to hide them anymore because hiding them only made them persist. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of out myself in a lot of ways in, mm-hmm. in the, in the podcast. And, um, you know, sometimes I pretend it's not out there.
0: How's that made you feel? You had your mountaintop experience where that was your first <laughs> letting it all out and you felt lighter Then you thought, hell no, I can't do, I can't put this out there. And now you're 70 episodes in. Do you find that the more you do this, you're having that same experience you had with that counselor where you're like, oh, this is becoming the language of honesty.
2: At the beginning, it, it definitely saved my life. And it had that feeling. Mm -hmm. I can only, I feel like I can only really articulate myself when I'm in a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. So The better I started to feel, the harder the episodes were for me, because I didn't know how to speak (laughs) from a place of feeling just okay with myself. Because then I get critical. And then the imposter syndrome. And it's like if it if you're not opening up an emotional vein, then it's crap. Like that's somehow I convinced myself of that. Come on, Joe. Queen's my Queen's
0: my ass. You're a Greenwich Village (laughs) beatnik. You need some poetry.
2: that's exact. That's my favorite place in the city to hang out. Is down in Bleeker Street in the village. Uh-huh. <laughs> Aha! Yeah. We got you know. the nail on the head. So, so it evolved from there, and then I started. I got certified with New York State to be a peer specialist. I started coaching people. Started to ask me to coach them, and I I didn't mm-hmm. want to do that. I didn't want that responsibility. You know, it was like who? I don't have a degree in psychology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that people who show up on my doorstep for coaching, I'm able to go where they need to go and not take Mm -hmm. them out of my, out of their feelings. Like I still have not had a client that has gone to a place that has made me uncomfortable being, Mm -hmm. and I'm able to go there with them and give them that mirroring face. What was done for me? And that therapist that I found at the end, Mm -hmm. the way she showed up and the way she mirrored things and reframed them from a perspective of, you know, I'm a worthless loser who has no value in this world. And she'd be like, okay, some of that may be true about you, but Mm -hmm. you're not looking in these other nine places where you do have value. And I'm like, well, I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. And it was, she kept mirroring the positive in me. She started to see, cause it has to be very grandiose. Like I, it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the best at what I do, or I'm not getting off the couch. And she was like, there's middle ground somewhere in there that you need to start finding. So yeah. I feel like I was given a gift by having that moment up on the mountain and by meeting Denise and going through therapy with her, that uh, it would be. I know this sounds cliche, but it would be a crime not to give this away. And the empathy and compassion and holding space for clients in front of me, I've actually learned how to have more empathy, compassion for myself. See, it's easy for me to do it for you. What's really hard is for me to do it for me. But by keep continually doing it, you know, all these sessions every week, I have found a a love and appreciation for myself that I hadn't had before. It's not that I don't battle, you know, worthlessness and not feeling good enough because it's always going to be there for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just never tear myself down as far as I used to. And I never think I'm better than I am. So it's that balance of there's good and bad in all of us and we're all doing our best to get through this. And if we don't start coming together as human beings and leveling the playing field with some kind of vulnerability and empathy for each other. What are we doing here?
0: Yeah. Well, how do people find your podcast, find your coaching? Where do they go? Give us addresses. Give us your social security number. Hit it.
2: (laughs) Social (laughs) security number isn't going to get you very far. Um, (laughs) The website is Joe Ryan.com. I'm mostly on Instagram at Joe Ryan. Um, coaching is joe ryan.com slash coaching. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. If you go to joe ryan.com slash links, it has all my contact, all my social, all the podcast info, and all of that.
1: Fantastic. Well, this has been an absolute delight. Listeners, we have just had a wonderful time talking with Joe Ryan. Joe, thanks. Uh, Listeners,
2: I, I, I really appreciate uh, the, the opportunity. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I know I know that our guys and their wives and girlfriends are really going to love this episode. Uh, you're a delight. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. Listeners, stay with us. We will be back in just a moment on the Pirate Moment Podcast.
0: And we are back on the Bart Monk podcast. Well, that was fun. That really did yeah. make me want to go visit the city and and see it from <laughs> Joe's perspective. I want to I want to see a hometown
1: boy's world. But yeah, though, I love New York. I've had some of the greatest times uh, in my life in New York with Allie, and some of the worst times of my life in New York without Allie. <laughs> Uh <laughs> Man, I can see how that how that
0: could go. But what a yeah. great what a, I. I love, well, I love all of the stories of how people arrive at coaching and doing this kind of work. And out of all of the times we have listened to people's stories, I'm still amazed at how unique they are. Like that was a very unique journey to get to this place.
1: I couldn't help but wonder, I was watching your face. Now the listeners can't see you, can't see us, uh, but we can see each other during these sessions. I was watching your face as he was talking about being a dad and being there for his kids, and sucking it up and doing for his kids. And I know that that has been, and at times continues to be a part of your story. And so I was curious, was, uh, were you relating to that part of the story at all about, about, about uh, showing I, your own humanity about, to your kids while caregiving? I don't know about
0: relating as much as really being curious to hear what the experience was like for him, because mm-hmm. I think, Again, when I look back, I think I've always had very open conversations with the kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the older I get, I see how many things I felt like, okay, these are the appropriate things. These are the inappropriate things to bring them into, which is true. We have to be wise with that. But just realizing, you know, the older you get, the more you like think of different times and different ways that you did it, different choices you made. Yeah, different conversations you have with the adult versions of them. And you just shake your head and you're yeah. like, man, was I really that arrogant that I yeah. thought I could control all of that. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. the season I've been in the last few years. So I think it's really interesting to me because what he's describing of trying to do his best for those three and a half days and then just kind of falling apart. And it's mm-hmm. like, Hey, that's admirable. That's good. He's yeah, being sure. the best dad he can be while at the same time that is not the long term version of life that any of our hearts desire and ultimately yeah. it's not what our parents or our, our kids want yeah. or need either
1: right yeah yeah, yeah.
0: and yeah. and even that not not being in a place to apologize or articulate our shame only creates in them the idea that we were perfect and so they have no vocabulary or experience to deal mm-hmm. with their own future shame right. so yeah i i thought that was that was very interesting listening to him mm. his his mm. journey in that, which is different than mine, but I'm always curious. And you've had yeah. your version of that over the years that's been fun and hard yeah. and sometimes heartbreaking sure. to watch and and yeah. new conversations yeah. 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 that circle around while you go hike in Ireland. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Things like exactly. that. Exactly. But it is good, uh, especially as our kids grow older to be just to become right-sized and human around them and related and let them in on the struggle, let them in on the failure, let them in on the shame. Mm, right-sized. Uh, you know, they, what a- they don't need us to be, they don't need us to be 10 feet tall.
0: No, they don't. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. good stuff. I am looking
0: forward to our upcoming conversations. I think we have another one in a couple of days and I will look forward to seeing you then and getting a chance to hang out with our listeners yet again here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. But until then... I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Aaron. <laughs> you tipped it off, teed it off that time. Of That's great. And we are your pal on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to PirateMonkPodcast at gmail.com please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.